You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Mayer Feldberg, and you're listening to the Earn Invest podcast. There was once three brothers who set off on the journey of a lifetime by embarking on three separate roads. Each brother was uniquely different, and quickly these roads diverged. It was believed that the eldest brother was most wise because his path was clear and straight. The middle brother was a strong walker but easily distracted. It was hard to keep him concentrated on the task at hand. And finally, the youngest brother was generally thought of as lazy. He neither moved forward too quickly nor got distracted too easily. He was just slow deliberate. The eldest of the three brothers had a concrete goal in mind, for he hated the road. He never liked hiking. So he saw the end as a destination, a culmination of his struggles. His thirst for finishing was so great that he often skipped meals and sleep to plod farther along. He suffered greatly. The eldest made great progress in short time. His physical fatigue and emotional weakness was beowed by dreams of all the things he could do once he reached his destination. If only he could get there faster, he would be free. Free to travel to foreign lands, or even better, climb the tallest mountains. These dreams were the steam in his engine, the gas in his car. When he finally came to the end of the road, he did indeed enjoy a long period of freedom, but the road had battered him both mentally and physically. He sometimes wondered why he had been in so much of a rush in the first place. The middle of the three brothers also wasn't overly fond of his particular road, but he neither had the strength nor determination of his elder brother. So instead, he tackled a few miles at a time. When he found his energy running low, he would follow a flight of fancy into the fields or up a mountain. Although these trips off the prescribed path lengthened the middle brother's journey and cost him in terms of time, he found his joy refreshed and his stamina rebuilt with each extracurricular foray. It was many years after the elder brother that the middle brother reached the end of his road. He had less time to enjoy his new freedom, but a little more energy. The youngest brother was much slower and more deliberate than his elders. In fact, he loved to hike. So instead of looking at the road as a destination, he saw the path as a journey. He spent countless hours leisurely walking down the road. He noticed each and every tree, each and every splinter in the concrete. He felt no need to hurry. He felt no interest in pursuing a side path or a flight of fancy. When the youngest brother reached the end of his road, he did something odd that neither of his older brothers could understand. He turned around 
and started to walk back the way he came. Because you see, for the youngest brother, there was no finish line. The question is, which brother are you? Meyer Feldberg has had an illustrious career. He's been the dean of several business schools, including Columbia, a senior advisor to Morgan Stanley, also a spouse, a father, and a grandfather, as well as at times in his life, a world-class athlete. The name of his recently published book is No Finish Line. Meyer, I think the name of your book is very apt because it seems to me like you don't rest very much. You seem like a pretty busy guy. Yes, you're right. I don't rest very much and I'm always looking to move on or forward. So there, there comes a time when, when my wife and I will sit down together and say, you know, we need to move on. We need to go somewhere else. We need to do something different. We've lived on three continents in eight cities and many universities. And each move, I think, uh, has been a, an advantageous move. It always got better. And that's why I come to the point at which I thought, it's now time to go. Now time to move on. I love this idea of always moving forward and always moving on. Let me ask you about time in your life when it seems like you didn't. You seem to have quite a dogged determination, yet you were on par to become an Olympic level athlete in swimming. And then you just stopped on a dime. What happened? The Olympic Games that I expected to go to was in 1962. Tokyo. And early 1962, uh, South Africa was banned from the Olympics. And the day that the notice was given that South Africa would not be welcomed at the uh, Tokyo Olympics, that very day, I decided that we would leave South Africa and come to the United States. At that point, not only did you decide that you wanted to move, but that you also didn't want to swim competitively anymore? Once we got to the United States, we really invested ourselves in the academic world almost totally. The decision for for me to move to the United States and to Columbia to to graduate school of business there, I met my wife on the way to the United States. On the way to the United States, I stopped in Israel to visit my sister, and uh, I was sitting at at a hotel, a swimming pool, There was a young lady sitting uh, just across from me, a few feet away, and I was very impressed because she didn't stop eating. (laughs) uh, So we started talking, and it turns out that she was from London, and she was there with her parents. And that night, we went out for dinner. The next three or four nights, we went out for dinner every night, and then she went back to London, and uh, I was due to go to New York, but I went to New York via London and uh, spent some time together again in London. And then I went to the US, went to Columbia Business School, was in the first semester, I think it was, and she pitched up. We were married and we've been married for, I guess, 55 years. So your love of swimming may not have won you an Olympic gold, but it landed you a wife, huh? The best, the best, (laughs) exactly, exactly. I want to go to another defining moment in your life. When you were 12 years old, your dad got sick. What happened? My father had a heart attack. It's been a very sad story for for our family. My mother, my father, and my sister all died at the age of 72. I think I was 10. And I remember walking early in the morning past his room to go down to the kitchen to get some breakfast. And uh, his room was, was relatively dark, but there were people in the room 
physicians and, uh, and my sister was in there and then she took me downstairs. She was seven years older than me to tell me that uh, dad had had a heart attack. This story you tell in the fairly early beginning of the book, it sounds like it had a profound effect on your trajectory, maybe as well on your drive to succeed too. How did your dad's illness affect you? He was a very driven person himself. And I think he had substantial expectations of me. And I think whenever I did something that I thought was important, uh, significant, appropriate, I always thought of my father and I always thought dad would really be happy to see me doing this. Uh, Now, there were times when I did things that I shouldn't have done. And uh, I also recognized that he probably would not have been happy with that. Yeah, I connect with your story quite a bit. My father died when I was eight years old. And you realize from a young age how fragile life can be and how you have to take advantage of the moment because it might not be there in the future. Exactly. Exactly. I think we share that that story and maybe that sense of drive that comes from seeing our loved ones get sick when we're little. I'm sorry, that's a story we have to share. A story I hear more and more of as I talk to more people who are driven and who have achieved a lot of things. Sometimes those early childhood traumas break us. And then for other people, it drives us to become what we eventually become. Yes, it pushes you to move on. I guess you could call that bad luck. When I was reading your acknowledgments to your book, number one acknowledgement is Lady Luck. And that actually surprised me because in a lot of ways after reading your book, I feel like you created your own success. Tell me about the role luck has played in your life. We came to the right country. We came to the right cities. And we made the right friends. I can think of almost no occasions where, where, where we were with people that were inappropriate or were not helpful. We just seemed to land in, in good places. I mean, you know, when, when we left South Africa, I remember Milton Friedman had come to stay with us, Milton and Rose Friedman. And when, when we took him back to the airport to fly back to, uh, to the U.S., as we were walking on the tarmac, he stopped me and he put his hand on my arm and he said, Mayor, it's time for you to leave. It was a moment that I'll never forget. Milton Friedman was Milton Friedman. If he told me it was time to leave, it was time to leave. <laughs> and uh, when we came to, to, to the U.S., he was exceptionally helpful. I mean, there was nothing that he couldn't do and wouldn't do for us. You mentioned both luck and friends, and I can't help but thinking about a story of your trip to New Orleans. You were on a business trip and you were eating alone and someone comes up and introduces themselves and you end up having dinner with them. Someone who's well known, at least in my circles in Chicago. Tell us about that story. That story hasn't ended. Uh, I was sitting by myself in the court of the two sisters I was there for a uh, meeting of business school deans, worldwide business school deans in New Orleans. I was sitting in the court of two sisters by myself, and there were a couple sitting a table away. And three quarters of the way through the dinner, the lady stood up and came over to, uh, to me and said, my husband and I are sitting across there, and we hate to see people lit- sitting alone eating dinner. Why don't you come and join us? And I was taken aback and I said, well, that's very 
graceful of you. And, and uh, as soon as I finish this course, I, I will come and sit with you. And uh, I went to sit with Bob and Audrey Pritzker. That relationship had a profound impact on our lives. They encouraged us to come to Chicago. Uh, when we first arrived there, they let us live in their home until we found somewhere to, to live. Bob Pritzker arranged for my son, Louis, to get a job in Paris uh, for one of the Pritzker organizations. They really were young parents to us in our first years in, in the United States, and we've been kept in touch with the Pritzker family for a very long time. The Pritzkers are very well known in Chicago, not only because of Governor Pritzker currently, but because of their several endowments and foundations, as well as their connection to the University of Chicago. So Pritzker is a well-known name around here. So when I read your story, it, it definitely connected with me immediately in the book. You like the story about the going up and down the elevators so that Bob could get the parking validation. Yeah. So Meyer is talking about a story in the book in which he's talking about Bob Pritzker's frugality. And again, if you're from the Chicagoland area, you realize the Pritzkers have quite a fortune as a family, and yet frugality was a key part of his personality. So you were up on the 95th floor of the John Hancock building, which is a famous restaurant. And after taking the two elevators to get down, Bob realized that he hadn't validated his parking permit and went all the way back up, which if you've ever done this, which I have several times, takes quite a while to transfer elevators and go up 95 floors. So it is a true testament to his frugality. The community that I'm a part of that listens to this podcast are people who are definitely interested in personal finance and frugality plays a big role. So that story probably would connect with many of the people who are listening to this podcast. Bob Britzker was also instrumental in getting you to the Illinois Institute of Technology where you were president. Is that right? Correct. He and Bob Galvin were co-chairs of IIT and uh, they persuaded me to leave Tulane and, and come to Chicago as president of Illinois Institute of Technology. You mentioned Bob Galvin, and it really reminds me of the push and pull I feel throughout the book between relationships and taking risks and growing in your career. You were working alongside or with Bob Pritzker and Bob Galvin at Illinois Institute of Technology, and you made the fairly difficult decision to go back to Columbia to become the dean of the business school. Talk about that intermix of balancing relationships with taking risks and moving forward in your career. I think in all the moves that we made, there were people involved who were close friends. At IIT, I was sitting in the office, it was in my third year, and uh, suddenly my, my assistant comes in and says, there's somebody here to see you. He doesn't have an appointment. And I said, who is it? And it was Ben Rosen. Ben Rosen was the founder of Compact Computers. And Ben had been my chairman of the board at Tulane. He was originally from New Orleans and had gone to Tulane University, built an enormously successful business at Compaq was on the board also of Columbia. Columbia was looking for a new dean. Rosen came into my office, and this is exactly how it went. Rosen came into the office, and I said, Ben, it's so nice to see you. I didn't know you were coming. And he sat down, and he said, yes, and I'm going to see a lot more of you because you're coming back to New York. You're coming to Columbia. You're going to be the dean. 
And I looked at him and I said, Ben, what are you talking about? I've only been here three years. I can't possibly leave and walk out after only three years. He said, it's nothing to be discussed. It has been arranged and you will enjoy. You're coming to Columbia and you're going to be the dean. Well, I did that. And uh, you have no idea how unhappy Bob Prisker and Bob Galvin were about that. And, and, and rightly so. Rightly so. But it was a great move for, for us to come back to New York and to Columbia. So as we were just talking about, when you're looking at moving forward in your career, you have to balance the relationships with risk-taking. By moving away from Illinois Institute of Technology into Columbia, you had to manage and juggle those relationships. The other thing that sometimes we have to manage in our careers is social justice. And I wanted to spend a minute or two talking about Sam Zondi and the role he played in your life at the time that you were still in Cape Town. Sure. So business school at the University of Cape Town was an all-white business school, as was almost every part of, of, of the university. And it's, it's so strange to say this, but, you know, you had to get permission for somebody to go to an institution that was a white institution if the individual was not white. And I can't remember what it was that prompted me suddenly to stand in front of a class of students. And I'm introducing the chief of the Zulus in South Africa, Gacha Buthelezi, who became a close friend of my wife and mine uh, over time. I introduced Gacha Buthelezi, and this is probably the first time that the business school at the University of Cape Town has ever had a black speaker in, in front of them. The students went crazy. It was just fantastically successful and exciting and unusual speech that he, that he gave. And uh, after he finished, we walked out. I suddenly realized I'm standing there, a white man next to a black man in front of 70 other white people. Uh, what's wrong with that? So he and I then spent some time together in Natal, in, in Durban. He came to see me and uh, I had lunch together with him. And in fact, I had to get permission to have lunch with him at, a, at a, an all-white hotel. And I told him, I said, you know, I've got to have you help me get some Africans to come to the business school and I'll fight for it. And uh, some months later, I got a call from him and he said, I have a candidate for you. And uh, Sam Zondi came to the school and he was clearly qualified. I had to get permission from the Minister of Education, uh, which was a long and tough business. In fact, uh, I, I actually had to threaten the minister at that time by saying, unless I get your answer, I'm going to send this telegram to the, uh, to the press. And in the end, they did. They allowed me to, uh, to admit the first black person into Cape Town Business School. So Sam Zondi arrived and uh, the faculty had agreed, and it was all white faculty, of course, the faculty had agreed that because the minister would not allow him to live on the campus itself and not allowed to live in a white dorm, he had to live in what is called a township, which was probably about uh, 35, 40 minutes away from the university. So uh, the faculty pitched in and we bought him a car so he could go back and forth. Months after this, or maybe even less, I suddenly realized this was just absurd. Why are we forcing this young man to schlep back and forth, back and forth for 30 miles each time when we've got rooms in the dorm that are vacant? 
So I just automatically put him into a, one of the dorms, an all-white dorm, where they were, they were all white, an all-white dorm, and I never asked anybody, and I never told anybody, and guess what? It worked. And he finished and, uh, and graduated, and the white students, I don't recall any of them being resentful about that. It was a sort of a moment of extreme pleasure, I think, for everybody to see this unfold as effectively as it did. And returning years later to the Cape Town Business School, it's fully integrated now, is that correct? Fully integrated. And when about four or five years ago, when I went back, uh, I gave a talk to the class. And uh, as I said in the book, I was standing in front of 70% Sam Zondis. Uh, there were more black Africans there than white South Africans. You seem pretty career focused throughout the book. Were you worried that this was going to affect you? Were you worried that you might miss out on other opportunities by taking this controversial stance? No, quite frankly, it never occurred to me. Suddenly I realized something had to be done. Something had to be done. And it wasn't a big, great fuss. It was just one guy. But that one guy turned into a great big fuss. And the whole nature of the business school the University of Cape Town Business School changed as a result of that. So it seems like you certainly didn't have much regret about that time in your life and what you did. I noticed that mostly there's a very optimistic tone to no finish line, but there were some moments of regret. One in particular deals with Bob Pritzker and his passing. Yes. It's a poignant moment in the book, partially because it's something that Looking back, it feels like you did wrong. I did. And I felt that almost immediately. I felt that almost immediately. He had been exceptionally helpful to my wife and I and my children. I mean, as I said, he got my son a job with the Pritzker family in France. So we had dinner with Bob Pritzker and his, I guess, second wife. He was already seriously ill. I had to help him cut his food. and. Um, I just felt that, that I'd lost touch with him when we came to New York, and that was not a good thing. I should have remained close to somebody who did so much for us. He passed away shortly after the dinner, but the thing that most bothered me was that his daughter called me a second time and said that he was coming back again for another uh, visit to New York, and he wanted to have dinner with me. And my wife and I, but primarily me felt uncomfortable having another dinner with him because he was already seriously ill. And uh, I said, no, and I'll never forget that blunder that I made. You know, this was a man who gave everything for us and I was a jerk. I just didn't go to a, a dinner with him. It was terrible. One of the teaching moments of the book is learning how to be in the moment. And it sounds to me like that was that point in your life where you realized that you really had to work at doing that. And that's a difficult thing. I guess it is. I guess it is. And it stays, the memory stays with you. You know, it's interesting. The good memories stay with you, but the bad memories stay with you even more powerfully. You had mentioned that you had lost touch with Bob when you moved to New York. And certainly there are many supporting characters in your book, but one of them seems to be the city of New York. And you mentioned multiple times that place matters. Why did New York call to you so much? You know, I think that 
when I first arrived in New York uh, and went to Columbia Business School, I was in the, my first semester, and a young lady that, whom I met in Israel and who I then followed to London before coming to New York suddenly pitched up in New York, and uh, we were married. And we've been married for 55 years. So New York was a, a special attraction for me and for my wife, Barbara, and for our children. I always found, and I think my wife always found, New York is very agreeable and very friendly and very comfortable in bringing you into their lives. So we never felt lost here. We never felt that we didn't have friends here. We always felt that we were accumulating friends and they were taking us into their houses and they were taking us into the theatres and, and into the ballets. My wife is an artist. She's had a number of shows in, in New York that have been very successful. Uh, we're very involved in the life of the city, you know, on the board of the New York City Ballet, I guess now for, for nearly 20 years. It has so much to offer that I don't really notice the irritating aspects of New York. And there are irritating aspects uh, in New York, and, and traffic is probably the most significant one. But by and large, the city really does work. And for a city of this size, with all the activities that it has, to work so well is amazing. It strikes me that for you being successful at being the dean of Columbia Business School also meant embracing New York as a whole, its institutions, its people, its culture, that that played a big role in having you be successful at the job itself. Yes, I think that's absolutely so. Why is it so important? Why do you have to feel that connection or why did you as the dean of the business school? Well, I think you need to take as much advantage of opportunities, activities that are around you, that are available to you. And that's the, the moving forward nature of my personality is, is always looking for new things and different things and becoming engaged in them. And fortunately, my wife has the same kind of personality. Talking about the moving forward nature of your personality, how did you decide when it was time to retire from the Columbia Business School? Three five-year terms. You know, I thought I, I had done what I needed to do. The business school when I left was in the top 10 in the nation all the time. I think during part of my time there, I think we got down to number five in the nation. Again, I, I thought it's enough. I'm, I'm moving on now. I need to find something different. And I knew enough people in enough corporations in the city that I was sure that I would be able to get a position that would be valuable and, and comfortable, and uh, I would be around people that I knew. And that's how I ended up at Morgan Stanley. Was there any thought of maybe doing that traditional retiring thing or at least not re-entering corporate America? Like what drew you to corporate America as opposed to personal interests? Well, I have personal interest, but I like my life to be very full. And fortunately, my wife also likes her life to be very full. She paints every day. I go to the office every day. We go to the ballet. We go to the Philharmonic. We go to the opera. It's a lifestyle that keeps you active and young. There's always something to do here. Yesterday, we went for a seven-mile walk in Central Park. 
And you also are pretty regimented. You get up and exercise and stretch every day, right? Every day. Every day, except when I do it twice. <laughs> no sleeping in? No sleeping in. No sleeping in. Because of the uh, coronavirus, the gym in our building is being closed. So I had to go and buy some bicycles for myself. So I've got them upstairs in the dining room. Yeah, the coronavirus does not favor our workout habits. Clearly, okay. we've all had to adjust them to manage in this environment. The other thing I find really interesting is you've spent a lot of time sitting on boards, volunteer otherwise. Why is being part of the community participating in such a way so important to you? We have very close friends and we have many very close friends. But it also turns out that you can never have enough friends and you can never have enough relationships. All the boards that I've served on, and it has been a, a lot of boards, all the boards I've served on, there have been people on those boards who I have really admired. I know they're smarter than I am. It's good for me to be there. It's good for me to listen to what they say. Now, I like to say stuff as well, but uh, I would not be comfortable on a board that was a pedestrian board where the rest of the team, the rest of the board members were not really top-notch. And all the boards that I've been on, I, I've been lucky and, and the companies done well by, by recruiting the kind of people that they, that they did. And if I remember correctly, you sat on a board for Michael Blumberg, is that right? Yes. The first person that my wife and I met in the United States when we came back was Michael's sister. And we met her in Chicago. And I guess maybe the first week we were there, she invited us for dinner on a Friday night Sabbath. Her name is Marjorie Tibbon. And that was literally the first, the first week we came back to the U.S. And it was through Marjorie that we established a relationship and a friendship with, with Mike Bloomberg. He asked me to take on that job. It was Global Partners, New York City Global Partners. I had a team and we were really responsible for attracting and assisting and helping mayors from other cities around the world. So I want to summarize, just looking at your history, and I'm sure I'll leave quite a bit out here, but you started at the Cape Town Business School. You ended up coming to the U.S. eventually and working at the Allen Center at Northwestern. You were at IIT, the Illinois Institute of Technology, as president. You served Columbia for three five-year terms. We've talked a lot about your relationships. We've talked a little bit about your foundation work. You're now working as an advisor for Morgan Stanley. Tell me what is your legacy? What do you think you've created for the future? A happy family. We, and it's, it's, it's not just me. You know, I, I couldn't do any of this without Barbara. I think that it's a good feeling to know that you have not just people that you know, but you have people whom you know who are really close to you and who are important people and who, who raise you up. I think we're always looking for people who can, can help us be better than we are. And that's been one of the big advantages of New York City. I remember when we first arrived here, one of the first people that I spent time with so the first person was, was Ben Rosen, and then we, we got to meet Henry Kravis. I started a board of overseers at the business school, and Henry came onto the board and became chairman of the board of overseers and helped attract other very important and senior people to the board. 
it's not a happy static situation. It's a happy, exciting, moving life. You can't stop because you've got some good stuff now. You've got to keep creating more people and, and, and more interesting people. So that's why I, I think the book is no finish line. You don't, you, I'm not finished. And when we're not finished putting together the board of overseers, which was a very, very illustrious board with board members from all over the world, then you're looking for something else. And that's when I went onto the board of the New York City Ballet. And after three, five-year terms, I decided now it's the time for me to go into the, into the corporate world. You want to have good friends, but you want to keep creating and making new friends as well as retaining your existing friends. So are there any achievements out there waiting for you, big components of your bucket list that you haven't met yet that you're striving towards right now? I don't want to sound like a jerk, but that's hard to imagine. But, you know, fortunately, the family is all extremely healthy and well, and we all exercise all the time. So there may be something else coming for me somewhere or other. I know I have a 12 and a 15-year-old, so I know once you have kids and grandkids, your plans are never really over because you're hopefully involved in their lives and hoping and striving, maybe distantly, but for them to succeed. Exactly. Exactly. That's your biggest legacy, of course, your children. Have your kids read the book or your grandkids? And if so, what do they say about it? Yes, they've read the book. They all like the book. Christina, who's my executive assistant and, and who's here in the room with us now, has read the book. And uh, she was the one who typed the book. I like to bring everybody in. I'm not a loner. And how many grandkids do you have? Six. Six. And what do they say about grandpa? He never stops moving? <laughs> yes. Oh, my wife tells me they think he's had an amazing life. It has been an amazing life. I think we all agree on that. And certainly reading No Finish Line, it's easy to see how much you've done and accomplished and to enjoy those stories you tell. When you look at the book as a whole, how do you see it? Is it an autobiography or is it meant to be more a primer for someone looking to be successful in the business world? I think it's both, but I'm hoping that the book will encourage smart, intelligent individuals who have energy can take over and move in that kind of direction to continually be moving to bigger and better opportunities, becoming more important in their communities than ever before. You want to that kind of society. You want to live in that kind of society. And that's one of the reasons that New York is, is so important. People who come to New York and are successful find it very hard to leave. As you say this, I'm also interested in this idea of your kids and grandkids. They have you, a family member who's been successful and who obviously has lots of connections. One thing that's clear from reading your story is you had to make a lot of those connections on your own. How do you feel about helping the kids and grandkids along? How do you feel about connecting them with important relationships? Is that something you feel you should be doing or is it something part of you feels like they should do it on their own for the experience? Both. I have and do introduce my grandchildren to, uh, to people whom I think can be helpful to them whom they can be helpful to as well. It's not just a favor. If I want a grandchild to, to spend some time with one of my friends or colleagues, I'm assuming both sides benefit from the meeting. 
The book is No Finish Line. It has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I'm going to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can people buy this book if they're interested. So first, what is up next in your life? Well, I'm still at Morgan Stanley. I'm probably going to end a full-time job at Morgan Stanley, but it's entirely possible that I could end up back at a university. What role would you play now before you were dean of the business school? What type of role would you be looking for now in the university setting? I would probably be looking for less managerial work and more work directly with the students and the faculty to help them understand that there is no finish line, that they need to be growing all the time, that they can't uh, finish their course and their first book and, and then sit back and say, oh, thank God that's done, because it's never done. That's the point. There is no finish line. You've got to keep going at it all the time. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Meyer Feldberg. That's a wrap. Well, obviously, we can't put out a podcast every day. We can only do it on Mondays and Thursdays. You guys can still interact with the Earn and Invest community by going to our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And we talk about all sorts of issues on the Facebook group that really mirror the types of topics we cover on the podcast. For instance, Today, I posted a blog post from Liz at Frugal Woods, Want to Move to the Country, 15 Things You Should Consider. Now, this is something I think a lot of people think about. We mentioned geo-arbitrage internationally as well as domestically, this idea that you could move to a rural area, have a lot more space and time, and spend a lot less money is big in our community. Let's see what some community members said for this post. Dominic Lung said, Nope, too much work. In fact, as soon as my kids move out, I'm moving to a condo because I just hate yard work. Jennifer Terry Watson said, I lived in the country for a year early in my career as my spouse and I were commuting different directions. I learned very quickly that it is not for me. Alan Mueller writes, looking forward to it when commuting to a job is no longer part of the equation. Yeah, it certainly, Alan, could be something that you look forward to retiring to. And Gwen Mers, who was on Monday's show, writes, I want to live rural adjacent. I'd like to be in a small town or in the suburbs near a main drag, have some space of my own, but still be able to walk or bike places without fearing for my life on a narrow country road where people go 80 and there's no shoulders. It's a funny concept. I definitely love this idea of living in a rural area, but I also know that I'm a big time lover of cities. So probably for me, at least it would be great to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Definitely catch up with the rest of what's happening on the Earn and Invest podcast Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And we'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. 
The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Now back to the show. So we are back with Sunita Rao, former tennis player and real estate investor, and Lauren Williams, three-time Olympic medalist, as well as certified financial planner. Today, we're going to talk about COVID and the world of athletics. These are two former athletes. One thing that I think no one foresaw in this pandemic and in this economic downturn is that sports would go by the wayside. In fact, I think that there is a portion of our population that's currently going crazy because they can't watch their football, baseball, basketball, and tennis games. Suni, tell me, what would life have been like if you were in the midst of your tennis career and this pandemic hit? How would it have affected you? I've actually thought about this question a lot because I still have friends and people I knew um, who I competed with who are still on tour. I honestly don't know how I would have managed, you know. Um, I think especially tying it back to the financial piece because there's so many athletes like it there's just this disparity not like wage disparity in the US where like you have the top athletes making a ton of money and so this this like a, a hiatus won't really hurt them as much if they've planned properly but the rest of us are like living from check to check going from tournament to tournament so what happens when that supply dries up 
you know, and um, having had to face financial struggle after leaving my sport. I don't envy the people who are in this holding pattern where they can go back to their sport, but they can't do it right now and they can't earn an income right now. So um, I, I'm very concerned for, for so many who are in this position. Lauren, let's not just talk about finances, but what about training? Like we see these stories of these swimmers who are setting up wave pools in their backyard so they can stay in shape. You were in track and field and bobsledding. Can you still train? Could you have trained at the beginning of this pandemic when everything was really on strict lockdown in your field? Well, the thing that is is so unique about this situation is that it, you know, it varies state by state, it varies city by city, but then it also varies based on your comfort level. So some people are terrified of, you know, COVID and all that the implications are and things like that and and are not leaving their house because they're like, who cares about training and the Olympics, you know, being postponed or not, you know, initially they're like, I'm afraid of, you know, dying from this disease because that's what the news is telling us. So you got kind of three layers of it where there's your actual fear that may be stopping you from training. There may be, you know, one person living in California and another one living in Texas and in California, you can't go anywhere. Parks are closed, et cetera. In Texas, our parks never shut down. Um, So, you know, you can at least go to a park there's tracks open, you know, there's, there's just, it's varying levels of what's available to you as a a athlete all across the country. Um, And then also, like you said, it comes back to, it does come back to resources. So if you're a higher earning athlete, um, you know, maybe you're paying your trainer to come directly to your house. Whereas if you were somebody that was kind of making ends meet and you were using the college facilities and the college is shut down, uh, you don't have access once again. The other aspect of that is thinking about, well, when is the season coming again? how long do I need to train for? How hard should I be training right now? Should I kind of back off? This this all hit in, a, in an Olympic year where people were gearing up to make Olympic teams. Some people had already made Olympic teams depending on what sport you were in. So now you're at like, uh, I don't know if the Olympics are happening or not happening. Okay, now the Olympics are postponed, but is there going to be a season? Um, if I have a contract and a sponsorship of some sort, a lot of them are written to say you need to compete at least five times for the year or you can be reduced 20% as an example. Well, are the shoe companies going to let me off the hook because there were not five competitions? Well, the shoe companies are also hurting for money right now, so they may they may enforce that. Um, and so even if you're a high earner, your income can now be affected and you weren't seeing any of this coming. So you're like, maybe I should just keep training and be ready in case there's a season, you know, September, October, November, even though that's typically when track and field is shut down and you're done. Um, so it's created a lot of limbo for athletes, for sure. Lauren, let's talk about Olympic trials. If you had made the Olympics and all of a sudden everything is postponed, do you think these people have to retry out again? Well, it, it depends. It's going sport by sport once again. So some sports are saying if you already made a team, you're on a team. The big um, you know, risk that the Olympic committees are taking then is saying if you're on the team because you've already qualified and we don't want to take that away from you, are you still going to be healthy and fit next year this time? Um, we can't say for sure in, a, in track and field, we specifically do our trials like as close as possible to the games to make sure we're taking the absolute best, best athletes on the team. And we were, you know, quote unquote fortunate, I guess, in the sense that our trials didn't happen. So we will be able to do a trials next year and be able to take the best people by then. But you got to think who, you know, who do we, who suffers in that process? Who can't make it another 365 days? Whose last games was this supposed to be? You know, what 30 or, you know, 32 year old athlete that was kind of, you know, holding themselves together, no longer has the mental capacity, no longer has the, you know, the muscle fibers to, like, they're just like, I just can't do this anymore. This is going to be my last team and now I don't have a chance. 
Suni, Lauren brings up an important point. In lots of professions, we think of the career span as much longer. In something like tennis, you have a set number of years and things like the tournaments and the rankings are so important. How do delays affect that? Honestly, this is all new territory to everyone. I don't know what what the tour is going to be doing about rankings and that sort of thing because we're on a 52-week ranking system where um, you have to earn points every 52 weeks to keep it up. So now with people missing out on the grand slams and the big opportunities to truly like either boost or sustain, I don't really know what what the what the final decision is going to be. But at the end of the day, your top players are still are still going to be there and. I think I think it's really tough for those. Like um, Lauren mentioned, the age range. I uh, I'm 34, so at this point, if I was still playing, I would basically be held together with duct tape. I was held together with duct tape when I was 24, but that's neither here nor there, you know. So like the the thought that you know you're working your whole life for like these handful or even less, even fewer opportunities, and you're just you're just trying to hold it together for that opportunity and to have it be delayed, and you don't know if your body can can handle handle that delay it's that really resonates you know and i think it's it's definitely a tough position mentally and physically and emotionally for so many athletes right now yeah it's an interesting question right maybe some of these older athletes will actually get some healing time in and come back a little stronger and better than before that would be awesome just i was gonna say it really just depends um i've also talked to a, a good bit of swimmers i i represent you know i work with quite a few of them and the thing that's different about their sport is they say one day out of the water um you know takes two days in the water to, re- to to get back and so they're freaking out because you know they can't swim you know a missing a month means they're now two and a half months three months behind you you get out of sorts when you can't and then now they're like you said they're jumping in local pools or you know some friends in the backyard pool but they can't really swim to the the way that they need to to be able to train so we also have to think about like what are the long-term effects of you know the the overall sport is not going to be able to perform at as high a level the next year. Suni let's talk a little bit about the crowd right I, I believe I saw that there are some Japanese baseball leagues that have started up again and they have you know no crowds so they're playing to an empty stadium tell me how it would feel to be playing a match with an empty stadium and no one in the crowd. That's that, that can't, that's not much fun. <laughs> I think, yeah, I see your face, Lauren, Lauren's shaking your head. Um, I mean, so, so much of what we dream about is like entertaining and performing and like playing to these packed stadiums, you know, showing what we can do after all these years of training when nobody's watching, when you're like sweaty and grinding it out late in the evening, early in the morning. So I mean, I think so many athletes are will be grateful just for the ability to be able to perform again, but also there is that that small aspect of magic of being able to to perform for a crowd that'll be missing that 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 is a little bit sad. I think it would feel for me very much like it was a practice if you know there was a big stadium that you wanted to play in and show on television, but it was empty. And the other aspect is like you feed off the energy of the crowd, like because the pan the fans are stacked and they're yelling and they're screaming, and you know, like this is a big moment. I better show up and do something. <laughs> if it's just crickets, like how am I going to get revved up to even compete? There's nothing quite like playing to like a packed stadium. Like even just remembering it now, I'm getting goosebumps. You know, it's <laughs> it is one of the coolest experiences. You know, to to be able to share that moment with so many and to to be deprived of that is is disappointing for many. I'm sure. So, Lauren, I'm figuring that at some point, 
we will start getting back to some semblance of normal. I don't know when it'll be. I don't know how. But at some point, I suspect that athletics and sports will start up again, that one day we'll have hopefully packed stadiums, et cetera. This time away, this pause because of COVID, do you think it'll have any long-term effects on America's or even the world's love affair of watching athletics? I think that it will have an effect. You know, uh, it still remains to be seen whether it's a positive or negative effect. But, um, you know, in the absence of things, people fill the gaps with something else. And uh, you have to wonder how many people are not going to come back to something that was previously a love and an addiction for them and um, not find it worthwhile to show up in the stands or spend a lot of money to get to this place or that, because, you know, this is affecting everyone's lives. So if you previously, I I actually have a a conversation with somebody recently that loves going to concerts and they haven't been able to go to any this year. And now they're like, well, we're going to have a baby instead. And we know that's not, so this is really good practice for us not being able to go to concerts anymore. Their life is going to be completely changed. That's one set of concert tickets that were, you know, all-star gold VIP backstage all the time. They're not going to be purchased by all those places. Um, and you have to wonder what, what is the long-term effect of how many people are going to, you know, change their life completely because of what's happened recently. Sadly enough, I see a similarity with restaurants. What people are realizing is that they can cook at home and they're eating at home so much more often that sometimes their appetite to go out to eat is just not what it used to be now that they're doing something differently. SUNY tennis, is tennis unique? Do you think that this pause is going to change anything about America's love affair with tennis? No, not really, because Americans don't pay don't pay as much attention to tennis as they do like overseas, you know? So um, I think I think when it comes back, it's still going to be kind of like a medium level attention sport. Um, and I, I think it, it might be easier for players to return, given that it's not like a team sport. There are a couple of players who have tested positive in the last week. So there, the, the, the pause might be a little bit longer, but I don't think that there's going to be like that much of a change. Yeah, I certainly hope sports come back. I have a number of friends and family who are chomping at the bit, especially since one of our last memories connected to COVID in sports is that basketball player touching everything at the press conference saying he's not worried about COVID right before he's diagnosed. So we need to wipe that out of our memory and get back to what we love about athletics, especially here in the United States. Sunitha Rao, Lauren Williams, thank you again for being on. Awesome. Thanks for having us. I'm going to see if you can say two things for me. Okay. I'm listening. The first is going to be, I'm Meyer Feldberg, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Do you think you can say that for me? Just your name, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. My name is Mayer Feldberg, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Pod Site. <laughs> Close. Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. Are you signed up to do some more podcasts? Yes, we have one next week. Okay. Most of them, my bet is most of them will be easier than mine. <laughs> no, you, yours has been very easy because you're a very agreeable person. You know your business and you're agreeable. Yeah, I did really enjoy the book. And, um, you know, I found a lot good there because for people who don't know 
how to succeed or at the beginning of their career, it always seems so amorphous how you actually develop those skills and traits that make you successful. So I thought you did a really good job of talking about some of those salient traits that you built up over time that have served you. Um, and again, you've laced that with stories, which makes it interesting and exciting names that people recognize. In my case, for instance, I automatically, I saw Evanston and the Pritzkers. I'm like, ah, this is stuff I know about. Um, so I think you did a great job of that. So hopefully the book will sell very well. Thank you very much. Was she telling you something to say? <laughs> yes, yeah, she, she was, she was telling, she was telling me that, that, you care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.